it was 1973 that this movie came out. It was called The Exorcist. I want you to know I have never seen the movie, and when asking Pastor Scott if he had, he says, I've never seen it. That is the proper answer for both pastors this morning, <laughs> just in case, maybe someone else. But today, we're going to talk about a very serious subject. This isn't about Linda Blair and spinning heads and guacamole, if you did happen to see that film. But we are going to talk about a subject that is, at times, very controversial in the church. Uh, I put a picture, or actually Stephanie found this great picture of a young armored knight, because I don't want to make light of the topic, but I also don't want us to be freaked out about this topic of spiritual warfare, spiritual battle. I want to ask you a few questions. Is there an unseen spiritual force that kind of works like a computer virus behind the scenes in our lives? Is Satan and what he's about in his demonic realm, is that something that we should be reckoning with today as believers? Is there such thing as, we hear this word, spiritual warfare, what does that mean? Um, is all this just a result of Hollywood's overactive imagination, or is there actually a biblical balance that we can look to today that gives us some insight from God's Word about spiritual warfare and the armor of God? That's where we're headed this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would not let the messenger confuse the message and that this would be clear today that from your word we hear your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's just jump to it. Verse 10, Ephesians 6. This is the next to last message of this journey that we've been in the book of Ephesians. Pastor Scott will uh, wrap it up next week. Look at verse 10. Take your notes out. Uh, if you don't have them, grab them right now. The exhortation comes from verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We need to be clear here that we stand in it, we can't avoid it. Spiritual warfare, the fact that there's something going on unseen is happening. So get ready, be prepared, don't believe that this isn't a battle. In fact, there is a battle, and the enemy wants you to fall. And if you don't know you're in a battle, you've already lost. We don't do, however, anything in our own power. This is a couple verses I want you to really claim this morning. Look at this one, Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So this isn't a battle we fight, and I'll tell you about how the, the story ends in a moment. This is a battle God fights for us. Well, who is the enemy? Look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I'm going to give you our stance, and then I'll give you the schemes, and we'll describe who he is in kind of six adjectives. It says, stand firm. In other words, don't run. There's all kinds of uh, implications for that. We don't have to fear this demonic or spiritual realm. In fact, he's going to emphasize holding your ground two more times before he's done in this passage. So here's the, here's the picture. You fight, you don't fold. You resist, you don't retreat. 
Uh, you got to be ready. There's no surprises. And the only way, and this isn't my best imitation, but I'm going to try to do you. What is the stance? I'll, I'll have someone else illustrate that. But I, my mind just went to this. What is the stance to be ready? <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not karate kid, but you got to have, by the way, this would not work. I would think I'd pretty much be knocked over. I, I have horrible balance. In fact, on the Wii, I just always lose. I have no balance. All right. So the bottom line is that this is a real battle, but the problem is the enemy isn't your ex-husband. The enemy isn't your boss. The enemy isn't your business partner. You know what? The enemy is Satan. And all those other people that you think are the enemy, they're captives. They're the ones that are the victims of this along with us because we play right into his hands. Now, remember, I said, we don't have to be freaked out about this because we've already won the battle. God's won the battle. Check this verse out in Hebrews 2, 14. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. We know how the story ends, and that should be great comfort to those of you who are Christ followers today. If you're new to this whole thing, you're going, whoa, do, 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 I agree. We don't, this is not a horse for us, and I'll tell you more about that in a moment. This is just, we're teaching what God's Word's telling us to teach. Now, what are the schemes? He says that the enemy is somebody that's pretty crafty and wily, and I want to just give you from Scripture six characteristics of Satan's schemes. I'm not going to take a lot of time for it. There's more notes on the website that you can download if you'd like. The first comes from Revelation 12, 9. He is a deceiver. His first game, he sees this deceiver. They describe him as the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. He's the deceiver of the whole world. And then 2 Corinthians 11:14, he masquerades as an angel of light. He is intent to deceive you. Number two, He's an intimidator. Like a roaring lion from 1 Peter 5, 8, he hates you. He's coming after you, not because of who you are, but because of whose you are. Did you get that? He's coming out. You're not so special. It's not because who you are. It's because of whose you are. And if we act like there's just nothing going on around us, we are naive. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Now, I did a little research. When a lion is roaring, it's usually an old lion who's kind of lost his teeth, and that's the way he intimidates the prey because he doesn't have game anymore. It's kind of like some of us who used to play racquetball, or we used to play golf, or we used to play basketball, or we used to play tennis, and we don't have any game, so we grunt a whole lot, uh, something like that, all right? So he wants to say, he wants to devour you. Thirdly, we know he's the tempter the tempter. We see that in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. He's a tempter. He's always dangling something in front of you. Number four, he's the God of this age, the God of this age. We see that in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So this raised the question, so how much power does he have today? Can he activate himself in our lives? Let me just be clear with you. If you are a Christ follower, if Jesus Christ lives in your life, you've personally given your life to Jesus Christ, I do not believe, and I don't believe the scripture teaches that you can be possessed in any way, shape, or form by demonic forces. And I have people come to me, oh, what about this and that? 
I believe there can be this idea of spiritual oppression, but I don't believe that the Bible teaches that a, a true Christ follower can be possessed. Now, notwithstanding, I had a professor in seminary, and so many of you have read his books. His name was Neil Anderson, and he wrote a ton of books. And when I was taking the book of Acts with him in seminary, this is 30-something years ago, every morning he opened with a story of something that he got involved with on the mission field when he was a missionary, and it was like action story of the week. And it gives me kind of goosebumps because that's not the ministry I want to ever be involved in. And he was involved in some pretty crazy stuff, including exorcisms of people overseas, et cetera, et cetera. Now we say, ooh, that's kind of exciting. I'd like to be in that ministry. Let me tell you, do not, do not seek that out. That isn't something that any of us probably would want to be involved in. There are probably some people who are especially gifted for that, but that's not what we're about. We're not glorifying that. We're not believing that that's the norm for today. What we are believing is that because he is the God of this age, he blinds us into thinking that he has much more power in our lives than he really has. Amen? Number four, he's called Belial. And what does that mean? From 2 Corinthians 6.15, I put that in there because most of you have never heard that word, but that means that the definition of that term of who he is, that means he's wicked, worthless, and destructive. That's his character. And then lastly, he's described as proud, He's described as proud, and if you study Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14, you'll see the five I wills of Satan, and in that passage, it describes what Satan did in the big, in eternity past when there was this disagreement between God and Lucifer about what his role would be for all of eternity, and he makes these five declarative statements that says, I will ascend to the Most High, I will, I will, I will. It reeks with arrogance and pride. Yet we know from the book of Proverbs what happens about with people who are prideful. According to Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before a, and he did fall, and he fell, and he took a third of the demonic or the angelic realm who now make up the demonic forces of this world. Now, it's leading us to this whole idea of these two extremes. Let me read uh, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So I want to look at this activity, and then we'll look at uh, the alternatives. The activity is that the battle isn't fought solely on a physical level. There's an unseen spiritual dimension that is happening all around us, this cosmic force. And in fact, the closest movie that I could think of that kind of represents something going on behind the scenes was the movie The Matrix. Most confusing movie. I had to watch it several times to understand what in the world was going on and who was alive and who was dead and what was real and what wasn't real. But that kind of gets you with all that computer code going down. Imagine that going in the background or like a computer virus. You're just typing along and all of a sudden everything's gone. Like what happened right then? Uh, I am not surprised that if this week you felt something going on because there was a spiritual battle going on for the lives of kids this week. Um, I was just praying to God this week that I could preach up here without having a guilty conscience of somehow offending my wife this week, for instance. And I got to tell you, we had a fantastic week, mainly because I sequestered myself alone in a hotel. For, no, I didn't. Uh, 
But, but our grandson was here, and so he kept things light. Uh, but think about it. Anytime something of significance happens, there's tension in marriages. There's conflict on church staffs. There's disagreements with people. There's marriages that are falling apart. There's all kinds of things because Satan wants to distract us. And so this is something that uh, is real. Look at us, uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. How many of you ever read the book, This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti? Great book. It's a, a hypothetical illustration. If we were aware of kind of what was going on in the heavenlies, what might be transpiring between God and, and the underworld, so to speak. Now, the problem is that we get caught up in commercialization of this stuff. Uh, how many have ever been to the Westchester house? On, uh, anybody been to that? It's supposed to be a haunted house and has like a bazillion rooms um, and haunted houses and all this. And I, you know, who knows what all that is about? But there is something that says something's not right there, and people make money off of it. And that's not what I'm talking about either. There's, this is a very real battle that oftentimes goes on, and I'll tell you where it happens. It happens in your mind oftentimes, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So there's kind of two alternatives, right? The alternative number one is the devil is nowhere, and we deny his existence. Like, eh, eh, there's no such thing. We act as if there's no demonic realm. We're kind of uninformed and we're clueless. Uh, we believe that everything we experience is just on a physical level, um, and yet we're pretty naive if we don't think there's a spiritual component to this physical world that we live in. And so we try to explain all supernatural phenomena away, just we rationalize it away. That's one end of the spectrum. The flip side is the devil is everywhere. And we're distressed by his existence. In fact, we're obsessed with it. There's a devil behind every door. Uh, we fear him because he's the cause of every bad thing that ever happened in our lives. It's the devil. My flat tire, it's the devil. My computer froze, it's the devil. You know, uh, everything is the devil. In fact, we give him way too much credit on this end of the spectrum. We try to explain certain things, uh, uh, how those all happen because the devil did it. In fact, you have to be 60 years old or older to remember a comedian by the name of Flip Wilson, and his famous line was, the devil made me do it, right? Now, I'm pretty sure my hunger made me do it, uh, my own flesh made me do it, my own uh, capitulation to temptation made me do it. Uh, there's a lots of things that we kind of blame on the devil that we probably brought on ourselves. So what is the biblical stance? What's the, what's the bottom line between he's nowhere, he's everywhere, we're obsessed with him, we're distressed by him? Let me suggest this. I think the spiritual balance is that it's real, but let's not exaggerate his power. We don't exaggerate it, we don't exclude it. It's just a reality. I've been in ministry 39 years. I have been involved in one, count them, one exorcism in my entire ministry career. And I was hesitant whether I would tell this, but I want to tell you because I don't, it says, well, he's real, but you don't have any experience in this. I have one experience to tell you that I never want to be involved in it again. It went for seven hours, and it started at three o'clock on an afternoon in Edina, Minnesota, in the A-frame office with my college pastor and myself, with the girl who walked in and started talking crazy to us. And by the way, part of the issue with 
demonic issues in warfare is psychologists don't know whether this is multiple personal uh, multiple personality disorder, if there's some other schizophrenia going on. So I'm not claiming to be a psychologist that knows everything, but I can tell you what I experienced. She came in and she started talking about what she wanted, what she needed, and what she was looking for. And as we prayed for her, can we pray for her? She said, yes. And as soon as we started praying, her voice changed. And it got so low and garbled like this that I about wet my pants. I'm not telling you, and I'm prayed up, and our college pastor was kind of into Neil Anderson, so he was reading it. So I was thinking, are we just have a readiness level to believe this is something more than it really is, or is this the real deal? Uh, our secretaries were freaking out. You know, they're calling, like, call the pastors, get somebody else here. You know, call the fire department. Like, what, well, put out the fire? What's going on here? But this went on, and it was exhausting. It was exhausting, and we would name the name of Jesus, and in my opinion, I think what happened, there were at least three or four demonic spirits, she wasn't a Christian, that came out of her, and they were named by name. That's my one and only experience, and I was shaking, not because I was fearful, but because I don't want to be that guy who is unprepared spiritually, has unconfessed sin in his life, and somehow whatever's going on here begins to affect me. So I want to tell you, I don't believe this is something that is normative. I've been overseas a lot. I've seen some pretty crazy stuff. I've actually seen miracles overseas. But what I'm telling you, I believe we can't exaggerate it, but we can't exclude it. And you got to find that, that middle ground. And so, as we think about this, though all these things are true, we know that He is defeated. We know that He is the ruler of this world, John 12, 31, not forever, just for a time. And in Revelation 20, 10, He's the accuser of our brothers. He's been thrown down. So we courageously fight Him. We defeat Him. This passage gives us the principles on how we're supposed to do that. And so this is something worth fighting for, right? This is something worth fighting for. I'm not a fighter. I mean, I'm kind of a wimpy guy. I'll be honest with you. I'd rather make peace. Let's, you know, take it out on the racquetball court. Actually, there's one way to get back at people. Hit them with the ball. No, that's not nice. No, no, no. No, that's not nice. That's passive aggressive. But the bottom line is this is worth fighting for. If someone invites you to go fight MMA, you say, yeah, yeah, you can go fight whoever the reigning champion is. Uh, and, and you say, well, what's it for? And they're saying, that's worth like 10 bucks. You'd be like, I'm tapping out before again, I'm not doing this. If we're fighting for the family, for your wife, for your kids, and somehow the prize is if you don't win, they lose, and you lose them, then you're giving it all, and you're going to go into the fight ready and prepared. So this is worth fighting for. And so he tells us, well, how do you do this? And he gives us the equipment in verses 13 to 17, the equipment in verses 13 to 17. Now, I've, I wanted to illustrate it for you. I can't bring my own Roman soldier, but I can bring my own Mr. Rick Maddox here this morning. And uh, if we're going to have kind of modern combat equivalents, uh, we'll kind of let him illustrate it for us this morning. Notice he even got his hair cut for the occasion, as did I. Excuse me. Anyway, um, 
And so let's look at the equipment. Look at verse 13 together. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Remember, three times he says stand firm. You get the idea? We're standing firm. So that idea of taking up carries on the idea of once for all, it's a permanent deal. So this is powerful. Now, he's not dressed up in his toga and his, his leather boots and all that, because I think that would kind of like distract you a bit, you know, uh, not that this isn't distracting at all, um, but what I do believe about this is that Paul knows exactly what he's talking about because where is he writing this letter again? From where? In Rome, in prison, some believe being chained to a Roman guard, all right? So he knows this attire very well. So this is a perfect illustration of what he wants to talk about. Now, bottom line, in this passage, you've got to do your part and God's going to do his part. It's not an either-or proposition. And so there are six elements. The first is, he says, put on, therefore, verse 14, having fastened the belt of truth, all right, the belt of truth. Now, to be honest with you, I was trying to find a belt that had all that tactical stuff in a way like 40 pounds, but we'll uh, is it's hard for us to imagine why that's important, but imagine he was in a flowing toga kind of thing, and you're kind of tucking your, 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 your robe into your belt and stitching everything up, and the truth, you can't be in combat, in combat uh, hand-to-hand combat, if, if your stuff's falling out off of you, all right? It's got to be tied together. And so the belt keeps everything together. Now, why does he start? This is so interesting. I, I kind of get geeked out. I spent, you know, the, Pastor Scott, poor Pastor, has, like every week he prepares a new sermon. I get like six weeks to prepare. You know Martin Lloyd-Jones, side, sidebar, Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, is an English prof, uh, preacher. He wrote eight volumes on just the book of Ephesians. And the book this thick on these 10 verses is this. And so I can't give it to you all. You're just going to take the highlights. All right, so here we go. <laughs> Truth combats the lies we're told. If I had picked any illustration of who Satan is, the number one characteristic, he's a liar. He's a liar. John 8, his number one attack method starts with telling you a lie. So the obvious question is, what lies does he tell us? Let me give you a few. How about this? God doesn't love you. You're messed up. You're not worth saving. You can earn your way to heaven. If people knew the real you, they'd be horrified. What are the lies you believe? One time in a men's group, I hand out this thing, the lies we believe and the promises of God, and it was awesome. And if you've never seen that document, email me and I'll send it to you. It's awesome because it defies the lies that we believe and God's promises that overcome, all right? The second part is the breastplate or the body armor of righteousness, verses 14b, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, this is about a 40-pound pack. It is heavy. The Roman one was a little different, but it protects the vital organs, doesn't it? Because shots to the heart that will take us out. Not because we're so good, but because God is so great. And so you kind of have to put that on. And it's something that's interesting because if the breastplate of righteousness, why is that important? Let me, let me ask you this question. Whose righteousness are you, is, if this is a spiritual analogy, whose righteousness is he putting on? God's righteousness. This is a big theological term. And by the way, thank goodness that salvation takes a little quicker than this. But anyway... Um, <laughs> 
but that it, it is imputed righteousness. It's God's righteousness. He sees us for who we are in Christ. What does Satan want you to do? He wants you to believe that you are captive to your past. And so this righteousness, you, you can take a shot. That is hard. Ow. And that's, that's just his pecs. Okay. Um, so he'll use your, his, our past against us. He tries to beat you up. He's trying to tell you, you're not good enough. But isn't that the awesome part of the gospel? You're saved by grace through faith. You're not, you don't have to be good. God is good. You don't have to be great. He's greater. You don't have to be perfect. You're forgiven. You don't have to be sinless. You have the blood of Jesus Christ who covers you and protects you. And so here's a point that I want you to listen to. It's my observation with some of us that God is more willing to forgive than we're willing to forget. You see, it's all in the past. I don't know what your past is, but it's done. It's over. It's behind you. And you have to let go of that because you have the breastplate of righteousness. And he will always, Satan will always want you to look backwards at the wake of your failure instead of the forward horizon of your future. Number three, the shoes of the gospel of peace. Let's call them boots. And as for shoes on your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So we've got the shoes. Now, the Roman shoes would have spikes in them, and it would be more like, um, would be more like a football cleat, all right? But these are modern-day uh, boots that, that you wore for drilling, etc. So we have the shoes of the gospel of peace. So let me just state the obvious. You cannot go into battle with flip-flops. You just can't do that. I almost wore them today, but that would just really be embarrassing because I got white feet. All right? But we can't go into battle with flip-flops. You've got to have the proper shoes. You've got to have the firm foundation because you've got to be grounded. Now, you've got to get set. Now, we know how important feet are to battle. Just a, a review of history. What was the problem with uh, Washington and the troops in, in Valley Forge? What happened to their feet? They got frostbite. That kind of slowed things down. Now, fast forward almost 2,000 years, it's Vietnam, and what happens to the feet in Vietnam? Trench foot. Trench foot. Yeah, you, you had all kinds of, you know, you had frozen feet, you had jungle rot. So, you mess with the feet, it's a bad deal. Any of you who've ever had anything done to your feet, what's that thing? Bunions on your feet. Like, you're laid up. You're, got, you're going nowhere, right? Uh, our own living illustration was Pastor Scott a, a year ago when he tore his whole plash, uh, plantar fasciitis, and he was on that little scooter. I thought it was pretty cool, but uh, that was very, it bugged me. It was a bummer. He, he wasn't going anywhere. There's no more basketball for him for months. So your feet are important, and ultimately, it's the foundation of the gospel. And notice, the gospel ultimately is about peace, right? It's the peace between God and you. It's the reconciliation between you and God. And equally important, it's the peace between you and somebody else in this body. So let's be clear. The reason this is important because Satan always wants to divide us. He always wants to find a way for us to fight about some secondary doctrine, uh, about our freedom in Christ, about other people's sins and how they, we should be doing something about this or we should be doing something about that. But notice this is the gospel of peace. And it's my experience that no one is saved by a persuasive 
intellectual argument where we get into a loud debate. You know the, the scripture we keep forgetting to read over and over when you're engaging people who are far from Jesus? It says this in Luke, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. It's your kindness. It's the unexpected act of generosity and love to someone who's far from God, and they go, why are you doing that? Because Jesus loves you. Because He died for you. And I wouldn't do this, and oftentimes we, we, we wouldn't do it in the power of our own thinking, like, this guy's a yo-yo. He's such a jerk. And in our mind, we think, it, but God's called us to love our enemies, to love those who are far from God. And if you view them as an enemy, remember, Satan's the enemy. They're the captives. Let's not get, be confused about who the actual enemy is. It's not them. And so it's a gospel of peace, and he always wants to obscure that. Satan wants to obscure the gospel. Just make it simple. By the way, he, he didn't let up on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three times Jesus asked the Father, is there any way but the cross? God says, no. No, you've got to go to the cross. And ultimately, the cross is the, is the gospel of peace because in his death, he brought us to reconciliation with himself. Number four, the shield of faith. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, I tried to go modern military. I tried to get like a police shield. I tried to get a real shield. But instead, I've got, come on here. I've got Captain America's shield. I've got Captain America's shield. Now, here's the ironic thing. The actual Roman shield was something like this. It was covered with leather uh, treated uh, uh, wood treated with leather, so when the fiery darts would come, it would extinguish them. But uh, we have the shield of faith. Uh, I think if you've ever watched Braveheart or any of those movies where they have the shields and they all come together and the arrows are coming, uh, it's pretty powerful. Um, but the idea is that faith is trusting in God for who He says He is. And so that shield overcomes the rocks of doubt the broken bottles of shame, the grenades of fear, the firebombs of temptation, and anything else that causes you to doubt that God is in charge, that God loves you. Now, not only does it deflect things, but it put, this would have been covered in a treatment that would extinguish a fiery, because he describes those as fiery missiles or fiery darts. And our temptations are likened to that. If you read Psalm 18:30 or Proverbs 30, verse 5, or 1 John 5, 4. The other interesting thing is when we unite together in unity, and if I had a shield and you had a shield, it kind of pre protects us from all that comes around us. But if we can kind of hive somebody off and you're, you're alone and the, and the sniper kind of goes after you, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. And so we have the shield of faith. Fifth, we have the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. Now, this is not some baseball cap, all right? We're talking about, this is a legit helmet, all right? Now, they have much more uh, sophisticated helmets with like tracking radar and, you know, little visor things with infrared. But the helmet of salvation, it protects your noggin. It protects the hair you wish you had for some of you, um, or the silver hair that you have lots of. Um, 
It protects your, but think about what your mind, what you think about. I think this helmet of salvation, it protects your thoughts because Satan wants to get into your head. He wants to cause you doubt. His favorite question, he's been doing this since the garden, is this three-word question. Has God said, really? He said that? Just poking you with a little doubt, like, is he really who he says is? If you wonder if Paul read the Old Testament, we know he did, just check out Isaiah 59, 17, because he's taking that right from Isaiah 59, 17, this helmet of salvation. So it protects your mind. And our salvation, I want you to understand, is rooted both in an intellectual understanding and a, a, a volitional choice of the will, and there's emotions behind that. Now, some of you think that the emotions are the most important part of salvation. It isn't. Some of you didn't see lightning bolts and, you know, manna from heaven. It just, you prayed to receive Christ, and it was like, okay, taking care of business here. But it works together, but it is a choice as you respond to the gospel. And so salvation is what we're battling for. And if I haven't missed my mark, when you doubt, Christian, when you doubt the salvation that God gave you, it causes, it causes you all kinds of problems. That's why it's so important when you come to me with me or Pastor Scott and you say you're a believer, I have you reshare your testimony and tell me, how did you come to faith in Christ? And I always ask these two questions. If you were to die today, would you know for sure you're going to heaven? And half the time people say, I hope so. The other half say, yeah. Other people, well, I'm not sure. Then I ask them the second question. If you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what answer would you give him? And I invariably hear this from someone. They say, well, I think I'm a pretty good person. I really haven't hurt anybody. I haven't robbed any banks. They don't usually go through the list, but I give that list for them. You go, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and you go, yeah, by the time they're feeling pretty good about themselves. I said, you know, the problem with that's all based on what you've done, but it has nothing to do with what Christ has done. And then I go back and I share the gospel. And what I find out is they were a believer, but they didn't quite understand that you have this assurance of salvation that once and for all, when you trust Jesus Christ for your Savior and Lord, you don't have to look back about the sin in your past. You don't have to be perfect. You know, God's going to be at work in you and he's going to change you from the inside out. Amen. And so what happens is if he can cause you to doubt that, then you're crippled in fear like, I'm worthless, I can't do this, I can't serve, I'm, I'm just dis disqualified. And what he's saying is, no, I'm going to protect you because you have salvation. Now, I wish this was a little bit more ethnically diverse because I'd like to be hearing some amens like you're from the South. <laughs> do I hear a little amen? All right, all right, there we go. And so this happened to me personally. You can have a seat for a bit here. This happened to me personally. I'd become a Christian when I was in first grade. But the, the deal was I was going off to a public high school in ninth grade, and the summer of my eighth grade year, I had all kinds of doubts. And I was kind of one of those 13, 14-year-olds that actually asked questions that, is there really God? What about creation? What about evolution? What about this? What about that? And my mind went, did your mind ever go like that? Or did just mine go, just me? Okay. Maybe I'm just weird. So I had all these doubts. I had all these questions. And I remember our junior high pastor sitting down with me and saying, John, what are you so worried about? I said, well, I just don't, I was six years old. Did I understand what I was doing? I believe in, he goes, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, did you believe he died on the cross? Yeah, do you believe that, that you trusted Christ? Well, yeah, but I was six. Six-year-olds drink milk and eat cookies, come on. Was that real? He goes, that was real, but if you want to cement that decision once and for all in your mind, 
let's pray right now. And I recommitted my life to Christ in that office in June of 1970. And I have never, ever looked back. I've never looked back and said, oh, man, I don't know if that was real. And whether I understood completely what I was doing on January 6, 1963, or seven years later in June of 1970, I am sealed, I'm forgiven, I'm redeemed, I'm saved. His imputed righteousness has covered me, and I don't ever have to look back. And this morning, you don't have to look back. This morning, you, if you kind of struggle in your Christian life, you said, I'm not really sure if I understood the gospel. I'm not exactly sure what it means to be a Christian. Today is the day. You come and talk to Pastor Scott, to me afterwards. Let's get it settled. Or if maybe, you know, you had some, something in your past that's just held you anchored because of a sin in the past that you just can't let go of, you, for, you haven't forgiven yourself, let's take care of that. Today is the day. Don't be chained to your past. And then lastly, he says, take on the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Notice that the sword of the Spirit is the only offensive weapon, and it's a short thing, and it's not this broad sword. This is not (laughs) no lightsaber. This is for hand-to-band combat. Now, I know this looks like a Kenyan butter knife, but but imagine that it's sharp and um, it could cut you, all right? and so, the Scripture's in our hand, and this, I, 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 I seriously, I had a chance to bring in an M14, but I didn't want to freak people out, so I'm going with the butter knife. All right. Um, but this is what we use. The Bible in our hand, this is what we use to refute the evil one. And then some think that the next item on the list, number seven, is prayer. I'm going to let Pastor Scott cover that next week. So, let's pray as we wrap up today. And I just want you to think about something as Chad plays for me, all right? Thank you, Rick. Let's hear it for Rick for his help today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the fact that we know how the story ends, that Satan is a defeated foe. And in fact, what we do know is that Because of what you've done on the cross, we have no fear. We don't have to exaggerate his power. We don't have to exclude his power. But what we do need to know today is, Lord, we want to be right with you. We want to be in right relationship with you. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want you to answer this simple question. If there's any doubt in your mind about whether you've trusted Jesus Christ in your life, and you believe that you did it in the past, but you're not sure now, would you just look up at me? Just look at me right now, anywhere in this audience. We can take care of that business today. Come and talk to me. Talk to Pastor Scott. Let's just pray through that. If there's number two, an issue in your past that you're saying, I got to deal with this. I got to let go of this. Look up at me. Say, yeah, I got something in my past. It's, It's like a fiery dart from Satan. Anybody? Okay. Okay. Come and talk. Lord, we know that this morning that you will make a difference in our lives and we don't have to battle alone, that this armor you've given us will make a difference. Lord, let, don't let us be educated beyond our obedience. That this oh, nice little sermon, we put it in our head and we go home. But we would apply the text, that we put all those things on as, as Christ followers. Lord, that we put on the belt of truth, that we put on the breastplate of righteousness, that we put the shoes of the gospel of peace on. We'd have the shield of faith.
We put on the helmet of salvation and we have the sword of the Spirit, your word to guide us. So that's our prayer today, Lord. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Now that is a song we need to end on today, amen? Because that summarizes what I've been talking about the whole morning. He is supreme, he is king, he's the conqueror, he's the overcomer, he's the deliverer, and we don't have to do a thing but rest in the fact that he's in charge and we don't have to, amen? Hey men, if we're talking about a battle, the best way to do it is for us to do it together. Little, little slight little pronouncement here. Go sign up for the men's retreat and let's do this job of standing for Jesus Christ together. Shameless plug. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week.